do go ahead and open up again to the book of Romans. Uh, Tonight we're coming to our last message on verses 5 through 8 of Romans chapter 8. We're reminding ourselves of what God's Word says about the person who walks according to the Spirit as opposed to the person who walks according to the flesh. Before we read verses 5 through 8, let me just remind you one last time of why this really, really matters. We saw it in the end of verse 4. The end of verse 4 makes it very clear that the work of atonement which God accomplished through Christ on the cross, uh, it does not save everyone. Uh, It saves those who walk according to the Spirit. So in other words, all of humanity explicitly can be separated into the two kinds of people described in verses 5 through 8. And it is only those who walk according to the Spirit who are truly saved and who are going to heaven. And so these verses help us to understand what a true Christian is and help us to better test ourselves and to see whether we are safe, whether we are right with God. This also helps us to know what to look for in our children, in our grandchildren, and in others around us in our church family, so that we may have some idea as to the state of one another's souls. And so these are very helpful verses, and I hope you see that. They really serve us well. And so let's read them again, verses 5 through 8, Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life. And peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, having already looked at what Paul says about those who are in the flesh, we have been lately considering what Paul says about those who are in the Spirit. And the first two points that we've seen are these. One, Those who are in the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And two, this morning, we saw that those who are in the Spirit are in a state of life and peace. Now, we might look at these verses and say, that appears to be everything. (laughs) That is, does Paul say anything else here in these verses about life in the Spirit? Uh, Somebody might look at these verses and say there's nothing else here to add to our understanding. Our our first point came from verse 5. Our second point came from verse 6. Verses 7 and 8 are only about those who are in the flesh. So there really isn't anything else to say from these verses about those who are in the Spirit. Well, I I obviously think that's wrong since we're going to preach one more sermon from these verses on life in the Spirit. And the reason I think that's wrong is because, as I've been trying to point out in every sermon here, Paul is using the idea of opposites in this passage. The spirit and the flesh are opposed to each other. So in verse 5, the person who walks according to the flesh has their mind set on the things of the flesh. Opposed to that, when you're converted, 
you become a person whose mind is set on the Spirit. These two are opposed to one another. Verse 6 works in terms of opposites. In fact, it's very clear between death and life. The person whose mind is set on the flesh is in a state of death. The person whose mind is set on the Spirit is in a state of life. And so Paul has set this pattern for us of working in opposites. And so in verses 7 and 8, though Paul only gives us one side, the side of the flesh, he is also indirectly teaching us something about those who are on this side, those who are in the Spirit. In other words, in verse 7, when Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, can we not then deduce that the mind that is set on the Spirit must be in friendly relation to God? When we are told that the mind that is set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law, can't we then deduce that the mind that is set on the Spirit can and indeed does submit to God's law? When we read in verse 8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, can't we deduce then that those who are in the Spirit can please God? You see, Paul is using rational arguments and he's contrasting these two opposites so that it is, it is legitimate, it is right for us to draw these conclusions. Indeed, verses 7 and 8 fall apart if these are not right conclusions. Very quickly, just to show you that Paul does indeed think this way, and he makes it even clearer in another passage, and I want to show it to you. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Uh, Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to begin reading in verse 16 of Galatians 5. And here we're going to see Paul again contrast those who are in the Spirit with those who are in the flesh. And so reading from Galatians 5, verse 16, listen to the Word of God. The Apostle Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, do you see the connection between that passage and the passage that we are studying? Uh, In that passage, uh, those who walk according to the flesh, doing the works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, no, you walk by the Spirit. 
And those who walk with the Spirit, they'll crucify the flesh. They'll deny the flesh. They'll be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul makes very explicit in Galatians 5 that these two ways of living are opposed to one another. That what is true of life in the flesh is going to be not true of life in the Spirit and vice versa. And so we have this principle of opposition taught concerning the flesh and the Spirit. Now, using that, turn back to Romans 8. Romans 8, I'm trying to defend why I'm drawing the points out of verse 7 and verse 8 that I am. I've already given them to you, but now we're going to take them one at a time. Um, I told you before there are five points to be drawn from these verses about life in the Spirit. We already saw the first one. Um, Those who live in the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. The second one, those who have their minds set on the Spirit are in a state of life and peace. Uh, Now the third one is this. The mind that is set on the Spirit is in friendly relation to God. And I get that from verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And therefore, the mind that is set on the Spirit is the opposite of that. It's not hostile to God. Christians have minds that are no longer at enmity with God. They are in friendly relation to God. Consider the difference here. Uh, The unbeliever has a mind that either denies God's existence or likes to think of God differently than he really is. The unbeliever gets no joy in thinking about the true God. Indeed, the unbeliever's mind rejects the true God, hates the true God. The unbeliever wants a God that serves him, um, not a God that is holy, 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 not a God that that has claims on our lives. But the Christian's mind is completely different. Remember, this word mind means more than just your intellect. There's an aspect of the heart to it, of the will, of the, the affections, the emotions. To be a Christian means that your mind is now in love with God. Your mind used to be at enmity with God. It hated God, changed. Now, your mind loves God. When you think of Him as He really is, Revealed in the Bible, you no longer have that knee-jerk reaction of, of hatred. Instead, your instinct is one of joy, one of worship. Indeed, there's nothing that your mind would rather think about than the glories of God, His character, His mighty works. These are the, the highest things your mind can be set upon. Think about this in our own human relationships. When we love someone we tend to think about them a lot. Our minds continue to go back to those that we love. And in fact, sometimes we see a, 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 a young man or a young woman and they've kind of fallen head over heels for someone and we might say that they're, they're love-struck, right? And all they can think about is this one that they love. Well, for the Christian, this is what's happening in us. We've become love-struck, enamored, enraptured with the glories of God, And we are beginning to see everything in light of Him. We cannot help but see everything in light of Him. Our minds dwell on His goodness and His purity, His power and His wisdom, His patience and His tenderness. We we see Him in the thunderstorm and we see Him in the gentle breeze. We see His handiwork all around us and it's preaching His beauty to us. We, We recognize that everything we have is a gift from His hands. 
In other words, it doesn't matter where we set our eyes. We, we open our eyes and set them on anything in this world. And we see something that is pointing us back to the God that we love. As Christians, our minds are being constantly drawn back to God. We love Him. This is how we like it to be. There are many subjects of conversations that we enjoy. We we enjoy talking about our sports team or the the latest project at work or how the kids are doing or the grandkids. Uh, Maybe we enjoy talking about politics or the latest movie we've seen, uh, the recent news headlines. But one way to test yourself to see if the Spirit is in you is to see if this is true for you. That there is one direction that a conversation can take that often fills your heart with sheer delight. And that's when the conversation turns to God and His goodness. When the conversation becomes theological, and not in the sense of theological controversy or theological argument, no, 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 in the sense of encouragement, in the sense of worship. When a brother and sister of Christ start telling you how they've seen something good from God this week, how they say, I, I've sensed God working in my life in this way, or I read this in my Bible this week, or I've, I've learned this through this trial this week. We, we love to hear that. We, we love to talk about how God has been faithful to us and to listen to our brothers and sisters as they share how God has been faithful to them. We love to hear what God is doing in the lives of those around us. We love to hear testimonies. Talk of God among those who truly know Him. This is the best kind of talk we can engage in. You see, the unbeliever's mind is hostile to God, but the believer's mind is not. It's in friendly relation to God. It loves God. Now, point four, our next point follows from this. The mind that is set on the Spirit submits to God's law. The mind that is set on the Spirit submits to God's law. And drawing this out of the opposite, right, from verse 7, this is another mark of a true Christian. Our minds used to be so hostile to God that we would never submit to His law. Not truly. Not from the heart. Not out of love. But that's all been changed in us now. Because the law of God, even the Ten Commandments that we've been talking about on Sunday nights, because the law of God reflects the character of God, the God that we love, the Christian now loves God's law and is eager to submit to it. This is why one of the easiest ways, you know, I I talk with, with pastors all the time who are going into churches, they're coming out of seminary, and they're going into churches, and they're trying to preach the Bible, and sometimes they come into very healthy churches, but often they're coming into very unhealthy churches where many of the people aren't even real believers in Christ. And I've told them one of the easiest ways for a pastor to begin to discern and to separate the the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, is simply to preach the Bible and then call on the people to obey it. And you'll begin to tell who's willing to obey the Word of God and who's not. That is, whose minds are willing to submit to the law of God when it's preached to them and whose minds want to rebel against the law of God when it's preached to them. Um, you know, Southeastern is putting out pastor after pastor now who's teaching some of the things that we've taught here about Biblical membership and church discipline and plurality of elders and these things. And 
And a lot of these preachers, they, they stand in the pulpit and they preach these things and they wait to see. Will the people obey? Will the people submit themselves to what the Word of God says? And in these churches, uh, these pastors can expect that there will be three kinds of people. There will be some who receive the teaching with eagerness and with excitement. They won't have any problems with what's being said. They'll, they'll see it in the Bible almost immediately, and they'll be saying, yes, pastor, let's, let's do this. Let's obey. Jesus says that we should do this this way. Let's do it. There will be others in the church who will find the teachings unsettling. They'll say, Pastor, that's not the way we've, we've done it before. And I'm, I'm not sure what it's going to look like. And I'm a little nervous about it. I'm a little scared about it. I, I want to go slow. I want to be sure that this is right. And yet, even as they're having those questions deep down, they say, in the end, I want to be faithful to Jesus. And even if it takes us a long time, and even if I have to struggle through it, I want to do what the Bible says. And if that's what it says, then, then I'm willing to do it. But then there's that third kind of person. And this is the person who, they're so obvious because they'll be able to say to the preacher, no, I, I know that the Bible says that, but I don't think we should do it. I know what you said, preacher, and I see it in the verses. I see Jesus said to do this, but I don't think that's right for our situation. I think we should do it this way. And it's so obvious. This person has a mind that doesn't even want to wrestle with the text. It doesn't even want to submit to Jesus. This is a mind that is hostile to God and wants to do things the way of self rather than the way of God. And that's really what Paul was teaching here. Those who have their minds set on the flesh have minds that are hostile to God and their minds will not submit to God. But here's a great mark of the true believer. Whether it's immediately eager or whether it takes time and it's a struggle, either way, if somebody has a mind that's willing to submit to the law of God, that is a wonderful mark of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. We have reason to be very encouraged when we see ourselves willing to submit to the teaching of God's Word, especially when it means change. If we're willing to change something in ourselves, to make changes in our lifestyles, to make changes in our families, in order to be more faithful to Jesus. That's a wonderful mark of a mind that is set on the Spirit. I want to ask a question to the senior adults who are in this room. Um, if one of the younger people in our church came to you and asked you how, you could, how they could really know whether or not they're a Christian, what answer would you give? And the reason I ask you that is I find it very interesting to see how the Apostle John, when he was a very old man, deals with that question in his first epistle. You see, we often go to 1 John to, to think about uh, what it means to truly be a believer. And we need to remember, this is John writing out of years of experience, years of pastoral experience, years of teaching the gospel and pastoring people. He's a, a seasoned old man, at least in his 80s, probably in his 90s. Some even think he had hit the century mark uh, when he writes 1 John. point is, John has been a Christian for a long time. And he's witnessed many things in his life. And he's been pouring himself into the next generation, training up one generation of leaders and then the next generation of leaders to have a solid understanding of Christianity. And so what did John point to first and foremost as the mark of those who are truly Christians? He pointed to this. 
He said, is your life generally dominated by obedience to God or disobedience to God? He said, that's the obvious key. In general, would you say that the tone and the tenor of your life is one of a mind that is submitting to God, a heart that is submitting to God, a life that is submitting to God, or one that is not? You remember how he put it in 1 John 2. By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. And then as if that wasn't clear enough, he goes on in chapter 3 and puts it this way. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children. Hear that as the, as the speaking of an older, right, 90-year-old, 95-year-old godly man. And he's speaking to us and he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Oh, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The idea here is not that Christians are sinless. John would be the first to say that Christians still sin. But there is a clear distinction, he says, between Christians and non-Christians. Christians have a life dominated by submission to God's commands. Christians obey God. In general, not perfectly. It's the tone, it's the tenor of their lives. And those who look at them from the outside can see that the Holy Spirit is in them because they are striving to obey God. It isn't this way for the, the non-Christian. The non-Christian keeps on sinning. He, he does not fight sin. Sin is a regular practice. Even when he knows that God is against it, the, the unbeliever continues to sin anyway. You see, if you don't trust God enough to receive His commandments as gifts of love to you, you don't really trust Him much at all. Real Christians trust God enough to take His Word as precious gifts and to say, thank you, God, for these commands. I want to do what you say. By the way, when Jesus said that He came to set sinners free, what do you think He meant by that? You see, the reason that we needed to be set free was because of verse 7, right? Our hearts and our minds were so against God that we could not submit to God's law. We were in bondage to disobedience. We could only break God's law. We couldn't do one good thing out of faith with a heart of love to God. No, even our best acts were, were acts of idolatry and, and filthiness. We were in bondage. And Jesus came to set us free from our bondage to disobedience so that we could obey. 
Picture the commands of God as a golden street that leads to blessedness. And God pours out good things on those who obey Him. And so this golden street of obedience to God is full of good things. Security and peace and deep-seated happiness. Our communion with God as we pray to Him and hear Him speak through His Word is sweet to us as we're walking this road of obedience. But before the Spirit came to us, we couldn't take one step on this road. We were constantly walking other, darker roads. But now that we have been set free, now that our eyes have been opened, we are quick to do all we can to get onto that golden road. And we want to walk that road and we want to enjoy the sweetness that it brings to live a life of obedience to God. We have been set free by Jesus in order to obey God's commands, in order to submit to His law and to find the joy that is there. So altogether, I would submit that Paul is really saying five things from verses 5 through 8 about life in the Spirit. One, those who have the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Two, those who have the Spirit are in a state of life and peace. Three, those who have the Spirit have minds that are in friendly relation to God. Fourth, those who have the Spirit can and do submit to God's law. And now our fifth and final point. Those who have the Spirit can please God. Those who have the Spirit can please God. I deduce this from the opposite statement in verse 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If those who are in the Spirit can also not please God, then there really isn't any reason for Paul to write verse 8. The whole point of verse 8 is to show the difference between those who are in the Spirit and those who are in the flesh. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And therefore, we can rightly say, well, those who are in the Spirit, they can please God. Uh, Christian, let me ask you, does, does this excite you? Do you consider it a wonderful thing that as a Christian, you really can bring pleasure to God. Maybe you've heard me stress so many times what Paul says in Romans 3. There is none who does good, no, not one. That maybe you've begun to think that even Christians can do nothing good in the sight of God. Well, friends, that passage in Romans 3 is speaking of all humanity apart from the Spirit of God. But when the Spirit of God comes upon us, what used to be impossible suddenly becomes possible. Yes, before we were saved, we could do nothing good in God's sight. Since everything that does not proceed from faith is sin, as unbelievers, everything we did was sin. But now, dear Christians, by God's grace, you do have faith. And that which proceeds from faith is not sin. That which proceeds from faith in Christ is pleasing in the sight of God. Mount Hermon when you are trusting in Christ's love for you, when you are living in that love, and out of the security of that love, when you serve other people and love other people, that genuinely pleases God. When you trust God enough to take His commandments to heart and to begin to obey them and put them into practice, it pleases Him. 
Yes, in a legal sense, God is already pleased with you and is forever pleased with you in Christ Jesus. But in an experiential sense, in a, in a fatherly sense, God is pleased with you, especially in those moments when He sees His goodness shining through in your life. Uh, in those moments where His goodness is displayed back to Him as you obey Him from a heart of faith. Ephesians 5.10 Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, there are certain things that bring pleasure to God. And we as Christians are to discern what are those things that bring pleasure to our God and we're to embrace them and we're to live them out. And by the way, we know what's at the top of the list. It's love. Love pleases God. In Philippians 4, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Paul is full of joy. He is grateful because a gift has come to him from the church in Philippi. Uh, It's come through the hands of a man named Epaphroditus. And Paul writes back to them to say thank you for this gift that he's received. And and he he tells them, he says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Why was Paul able to tell the church in Philippi that their gift to him was pleasing to God? Because it was a gift of love. It was a gift that that sprung out of their faith in God. It it was God who had commanded that church to care for his servants. And, And this gift that they sent to Paul sprung out of their love for God and sprung out of their faith in God and their desire to see the gospel proclaimed. And we could add to this that they believed the teaching of Jesus about how every good deed we do in this life will be rewarded in the future. And so we can say their good deed also came out of hearts of hope. You see, faith, hope, and love, these are the things that must be in us as we serve and act. And anytime we serve and act out of faith, hope, and love, this is pleasing to God. Another verse that speaks like this is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. That's what we want. We want to please God more and more. Let me ask you, do you remember what it was like to want to please your earthly mother or father? Children in this room, do you know the experience of wanting to do something to please your mom or dad? Uh, Maybe you've been thinking about how much your parents do for you, or adults, maybe you can remember thinking about how much your parents had done for you and how they loved you and cared for you and sacrificed for you. And and in light of all that, you wanted to do something to to warm their hearts. You wanted to do something to to bring pleasure to your parents, something to, to make them smile. This is how we ought to relate to our Heavenly Father. We should never try and pay God back for His love because we can never do that. And it's His glory to love us uh, when we can never pay Him back. But we should try and imitate Him. And we should try and express our love back to Him in this way. We should be children who love to please our Father. It should be our delight 
We want to know what makes our Father happy, what makes Him glad in the way we live, and then we ought to pursue that. Christian, is that in your heart? Is this, is this, do you think this way? Paul must have thought this way often because this language shows up in so many of his epistles, this language of pleasing the Father. Do you have a heart or mind that thinks this way? I want to please my Father today. I'm His child. He loves me. He's done so much for me. I want to please my Father. Yes, even as a Christian, every good deed thought, or word that comes from us will still be tainted by sin. And you will never perform any truly perfect deed in this lifetime. But the blood of Jesus removes every stain, and it cleanses every good deed. And then Christ presents all our good deeds to God. And He is truly pleased. Is this not a wonderful privilege that we have? to be able to bring joy to the heart of our Creator. So I close this way. If you are here, and these five descriptions of those who have the Spirit don't seem to describe your life, well then run to Christ, pray for salvation. But if you're here, and these five descriptions do seem to match your life, even even if it's just to a small degree, Okay, we're, we're, there's a sense in which we're all still baby Christians, right? We're all, we got so far to go. But even if these five descriptions match you to a small degree, praise God for that. And may these things be more and more true of us as the Spirit grows us up and matures us. What Jesus has begun in us, He will surely bring to completion. And there will be a day when we will be pure and perfect through and through. Jesus saves us not only from the guilt of our sin, but He saves us from the power and ultimately from the very presence of all sin. Jesus is going to bring us holy and blameless before God. And so we have lots of reasons to rejoice. I pray that you will. Let's pray.